One, two, three, four. One, two. You probably think that tax and accountancy aren't sexy, right? Wrong. When did making money and saving money become unfashionable? Let me ask you then, have you ever really spoken with an accountant about accountancy? What about seeing your accountant as an entrepreneur? Join me on Discipline this week as I speak to Darren Heverin about his incredible journey from average student to partner at Deloitte to giving it all away to find liberation and start out again at his own small firm which has grown and grown and grown. If you've ever heard the saying, every successful business needs a good accountant and a good lawyer, then you must know it's 100% accurate and Darren will explain all the details as to why a good accountant can save you dollars around tax, structure and systems. Darren Heverin, Managing Director of TGS Partners, Director at Igniting Change. Welcome to Discipline. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, it's customary to jump straight into things and uh, ask you some questions about yourself as a young man. Sure. When you were a young boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. Uh, I must admit, I was probably a bit of a wanderer when I was a child. I didn't have any clear uh, idea of what I would be when I grew up. Oh, there was probably all the customary uh, astronaut, fireman, <laughs> uh, policeman. But uh, both of my parents' careers were in the banking industry uh, with, with Westpac mainly. So there was a lot of uh, talk around the dinner table about banking and, and what they were doing at the bank and all the uh, joys of banking and the, and the not so good things about banking. So I think I was pretty clear that I didn't want to be a banker um, by the time I was in my teens. But um, yeah, I never had a clear direction towards uh, accounting, um, which is ironic given where, where I am now. But uh, I wandered through school. I did, I did okay in school. I was going to ask, were you a good student? I was a good student. Uh, I, I wasn't um, one of the rat bags or anything, but I wasn't an, an exceptional student. Um, my, my grades were pretty good, but not, not outstanding. Not shooting the lights out? Definitely not. Uh, and I think they probably tapered off towards year 12. Um, we went and lived in Papua New Guinea for three years during oh, wow. my high school years. So, yeah, I did uh, my GCSEs, which was the English uh, equivalent of HSC, and um, came back to do Year 12 in in Melbourne at my old high school in Moorabark High. And that was quite a disruptive um, thing to happen at, to a, a Year 12 student. Um and I think it threw me threw me off a little bit, so I wasn't too focused through Year 12, and I just sort of scraped across the line. I think I probably got around the 70, 75% mark. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's, a, a, it's a pass. <laughs> um, but uh, then I got into university and did the old catch-all um, degree arts of... Degree? No, not arts. Uh, I did business. Okay. General, just general business. Yeah. Just, uh, but I only got into Swinburne... On a on a, a letter of um, begging, uh, they opened a new campus out in Moorabark, Luckily, that year, and they took in special consideration cases of <laughs> which I was one, because I actually applied after year twelve. Uh, my first preference was medicine, 
Second was law. And then third was business. And I went... Just a few months off at 76 to get into business. Yeah, I was, yeah, there was no way I was getting into those first two. And I just scraped into the third. So, but even at that point, you can see I had no clear direction of where I wanted to go. And what about when, when you were going through school and um, university? Any entrepreneurial things? Any sort of dipping the toe into business or uh, investment? I'm going to say no. Okay. Uh, other than with obviously two bankers as parents uh we had a very strong uh focus on money savings so we had, we had a savings account from very very early yeah. on uh with the little paper um cash book ins and outs uh, I, I i believe i still have it <laughs> with uh literally with you know two dollars banked um one dollar banked then, you know, $10 out to buy something. Uh, I'm pretty sure in there it's got, um, when I've built it up over a period of, say, six months, uh, and then I've got the withdrawal for the Nintendo Donkey Kong Game Boy oh, uh, right. purchase. So, yeah. $90 back in the day. Oh, it was, it was pretty expensive, but a nice little historical record Still there. Still that. Yes. Probably worth about $400 on eBay. Uh, apparently, in good condition. Uh, they're going for up, upwards of 1000 So Really? It's a good investment. It's, it's, it's not in good condition, unfortunately. It's taken a, it's taken a few hits. So uh, I'll have to dig it out and see if it still sounds turns like, on. It sounds like a good investment. Yeah, okay. So you've, you've gone then into university yep. as a Bachelor of Business. That's right. But not specified accounting. Not accounting. Uh, and... I didn't go down the accounting stream until sort of midway through second year, I think. Um, and that sort of started grabbing my attention a bit. Uh, and then this was early 90s. So uh, at that time, we were having the recession we had to have, thanks to Mr. Keating. Uh, and Banana Republic. <laughs> yes, we were heading for a banana republic. Um, so we were, we were being told by our university lecturers that um, there was a very high likelihood that, um, you know, one in two of us would be unemployed post-university. Yeah. So jobs were at a premium and Swinburne fortunately had a, um, a it was called an industrial project or something along those lines, which meant you basically went and had work experience uh, if you could get it. So I was one of, uh, fortunately, one of six uh, young people that applied for a place at a firm called Dewsbury's in St Kilda Road, and they took five of us. So that was a, that was a lucky uh, application that I put in. And, yeah, so I did six months with Dewsbury's, and then they invited me to come back uh, after finishing my work. So I think having done that work experience really focused me and uh, I knuckled down at university you after thought, that. And did you actually think during that work experience, this is what I want to do, I see myself in this environment? I think, uh, I don't, I'm not sure that I thought, wow, this, this work is what I really want to do or that accounting is, is um, you know, the greatest thing in the world. Uh, but I certainly liked the work environment and the camaraderie and the money. Yeah, uh, right. actually getting a paycheck when you're being told 
there's, there's no a fair jobs. chance you'll be unemployed yeah. and, and the and, you know the country was in recession so I grabbed that with both hands and thought uh, this is probably worth knuckling down for at university and and getting a degree there's one other um, thing that probably influenced that in that I was working before that in a in an industrial laundry anyway that the industrial laundry um, experience was a real eye-opener it was very hard work hot grimy hot smelly smelly um and there were people who had spent their entire careers working in that factory really like you know great people um really nice but i thought there's no way i'm going to be spending 20 30 years uh working in a factory i mean it's uh, it's interesting because you know, nothing focuses the mind like something you see that you don't want to do that much. Because, yes. you know, especially when you're at university, you've got opportunity. Yeah. Um, I, I was the same. I remember from a young age going to the Holden factory in about year nine, being in Adelaide, Holdens were made out at Elizabeth. Yeah. And I that remember would have been awesome. seeing a guy putting plugs into engine blocks. Yeah. And all they did was putting plugs in coming Day in, day out. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got an opportunity to study. I should probably not stuff this up completely. Yeah. I did a pretty good job of almost ruining it, but (laughs) it did focus the mind. Absolutely. And uh, that was the realization that you can, you can work, um, in, in a, in a job that involves physical labor, uh, with generally very little financial reward. Or you can work in a career that involves using your mind, um, and uh, so I, I definitely thought the winning the winning path would be training up the mind and and, and not only did you train up the mind, I mean you then become really focused because something must have tweaked. You went on a path that landed you at Deloitte, one of the big four accounting firms, and as a partner. Uh, you eventually got to that, you know, lofty status. Yes. So something obviously tweaked and you, you went, put your head down and said, I've got some real ambition here. What, what was that? Sure. Um, so Dewsbury's, uh, I was fortunate in, in that Dewsbury's was uh, taken over by Deloitte uh, after about two years. So that really opened my, we moved into the city from CBD from, from St. Kilda Road and you know, much bigger organisation, uh, a lot of people, great, a really great um, group of graduates and, and young accountants. Uh, and the relationships forged in those early years, and particularly doing the CA program with the Institute of Chartered Accountants, uh, the relationships you develop at that point um, really follow you through your entire career. Right. So. So you're working trying to get billable hours and do the CA program in parallel. Correct. Yeah, so, okay. uh, which is still happening today, yeah. uh, obviously. And, you know, we've got young guys in here that are doing it as we speak. But um, It's a test of ambition, though. It is. And, and desire. There, there's, there's plenty that fall by the wayside at that yeah. point. Um, I mean, the, the in work environment in the big four... Um, is intense enough you're you know doing often 10 12 14 hours a day even more sometimes and then trying to do the ca program uh on the weekend or 
you know, around the sides of that. So it, it certainly tests your metal. Yeah. And um, there's plenty that fall off the bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, I don't know a huge amount of people from uh, law or accounting that have gone through to partnership level. Yeah. One, opportunities open up for various different uh, segues into business or in-house. And two, it is just an attritious war that yes. has to be fought. I must admit, I, I never had a burning ambition to make partner. And I, you know, there's, there's the occasional um, people you come across that, that that's their sole focus from very early on. It, it wasn't mine. I very much enjoyed the social side of the, um, the work as a young, you know, early 20s. Uh, and I'm not sure at what point the the fire lit under my uh, belly uh, to, to go for partnership. It was probably after my two-year stint in London. Okay. Uh, I yeah. went on the working holiday, left, left Deloitte. This was at about 28 years of age and went and did two years in London yeah. um, doing some work experience but mainly to get world experience, yes. to travel, see the world, yeah. see how so other people live. It was live. for us a, a rite of passage at about that age. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, it, it's it's one that I would strongly recommend to anyone who's uh, thinking about it. You know, is there any downside to it? In no. my view and in my experience, no. absolutely not. It's a late gap year where you can get great world experience, business experience, um, and for us, it, stuck on an island in the middle of the Pacific, Yeah, it's a great way to, you know, uh, get the travel bug. Yeah. Um, so when I came back from London in 2000 and 2000 or 2001, uh, there was a job, my job was waiting for me back at Deloitte. That's so I, yeah, so I, I jumped straight back into that. And uh, that was probably when I realised, well, what's next? Uh, so I really knuckled down and thought I might as well have a, a red hot crack at this and so I worked my way through uh, through the next seven or eight years and was again very fortunate that they uh, the team in there thought I was um, good enough to become a partner which I did in 2000 and 2006 so it was a five-year period of really I mean that the work doing the CA program was um, was challenging, but the lead up to becoming a partner is probably the hardest I've ever worked in my life. And how old were you? So I, I made partner uh, at 32, 33. And what was the average partner age? Uh, so it's probably more in late 30s, yeah. the average making partner. So, so don't undersell the achievement here because uh, making partner one of these things, not only do you have to work hard, be able to bill hard, uh, you have to play the politics game. You have to be liked internally. Absolutely. Um, and at 32, I mean, that's a serious achievement for anyone at these firms. Yeah, so. yeah. I was, um, it was, it, there was a little bit of luck in there, but a hell of a lot of hard work. Um, and, you know, I had the support of the partners in the Melbourne Business Services Division. So they all really backed me and, and helped me on that uh, transition into partnership. So... Um, yeah, I'm, on reflection, it's, uh, it was a huge achievement. It is. And for some people, it's an opportunity for life, you know, yeah. but for you, you've got to partner. Was it then not what you expected or? Uh, look, there were, there were things that were better than I expected. And there were things that, um, you know, were a surprise. 
let's let's call it that. <laughs> um, I think the main realization for me was that I was really just a, a sort of senior middle manager in a in a big organization. I wasn't really a business owner. I wasn't really um, a partner. Um, so the, the the big four firms, um, you there's such a big machine. There's so much you know bureaucracy, red tape. Um, you know we were answering to leaders in Sydney who you know really didn't know the Melbourne market in my view. Um, and yeah, it was. It, I was determined to give it three years, no matter what, whether I was loving it or hating it. And, you know, I loved it for the first couple of years. And in the third year, I was starting to think, well, uh, is this really for me for the rest of my life? And at that point, I was reaching 15 years within the system. Yeah. So I think on balance and on reflection, uh, I came to the conclusion that no, uh, this structure is not what I want. you know, at, at that point I was at, uh, let's say, 35, 36 years of age. I thought, wow, is this is this what I've got ahead of me for well, the next 20 uh, years? I mean, it's an amazing thought process because yeah. it's an opportunity of a lifetime. It's a very lucrative position to have, Yeah. Um, both in terms of the, the wealth it can generate but also the status yep. uh, and the companies you get to talk to. Yeah. And then you've decided to take a massive risk and... Go a different path. Took the plunge, uh, went out and joined a, a colleague that I'd um, known from my graduate days at Deloitte, Spiros Rambanis. So we came out, I came out and joined Spiros in a very small practice at the time uh, out, in, out in Hawthorne East. And uh, it's a very different world, um, very different conversations with clients. Um, so, but, and, but also our own business. You know? and, 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 but from a work perspective, did it seem at any point that you've taken a step back in terms of the quality of work or immediately you just felt this is really where I feel comfortable talking directly to customers or directly to clients? Yeah, I, I, the, it was immediately a um, freedom. Um, there was so many um, hoops to jump through at Deloitte uh, and so much red tape, uh, even just, you know, taking a client on, um, a, a, a reasonably small client yeah. would require, um, <laughs> reams of bureaucracy to get through you know, glo- conflict. global conflict searches yeah. for, uh, and, and, uh, I, I sort of realized I'm in, the, I'm in the middle market SME space, uh, small to medium enterprise, uh, and, you know, high net worth families, um, we don't need global conflict checks. Um, it was very liberating to realise that you could have conversations with with uh, new clients and have them onboarded instantly, yeah. um, knowing that you're not going to be conflicting with anyone else, um, and also knowing that uh, you know bringing in clients to our business, it's our business, um, and we're you know we're we're growing our business, and you know from that small beginning in. Uh, you know, Hawthorne East 10 years ago with with uh, four staff, you know, we've now grown to uh, 20 staff and the, the practice has essentially quadrupled in size. So, and that's been, you know, that's, that's exciting, that's fun. I think it's amazing as well, you know, again, you've gone from 
a structure where you've got all the support mechanisms in place, a global practice. Mm. You want something typed up, you have word processing. You yeah. want something photocopied, there's a junior, whatever. Now you come into your own firm um, where you've got none of those support, support structures, structures, none of that safety net, um, and maybe a couple of clients that Spiros had or followed you across, but you're essentially now an entrepreneur taking a risk. You're yes. Like, you must have had some moments of doubt. What have I done here? Massive moments of doubt. <laughs> uh, it, it was it was uh, liberating and yet terrifying at the same time. Taking that, and 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 don't forget, as I said, I'd been within the Deloitte comfort zone for fifteen years. Yeah. Um, I was almost institutionalised. <laughs> um, so, taking that leap of faith and thinking, wow, there there is no there's no backup yeah. here, and. It, you know, it was great as well in that you like you realise if something needs to get done, you just do it yourself. Yes. Um, and yeah, it, it's um, it, it was it was terrifying on reflection, um, but I'm you know extremely glad that I did it. Uh, no it's, regrets. None at all. Yeah, <laughs> clearly none at all. Um, as yeah. I said, it's a, it's a different kind of um, it's a very different kind of business. Uh, we we can set our entire strategy, our entire direction. Uh, within Deloitte, you had very minimal say on um, the strategic direction of the firm. Uh, you, you were, you know, you're answering to a lot of masters internally. And, and I think the other thing that potentially, I mean, I always think is amazing, is at a Deloitte, you know, you've got a pe- people managing a very important aspect of business without actually understanding what it's like to make those decisions in business. Mm. You're now in business, still advising professionally, yeah. but you've got first-hand understanding of the factors that drive business, the pressure of decision-making, payroll, HR, all sits with you. Do you, do you think you're now a better place to talk to people about business? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're facing all of the same issues that our, our clients are facing. So we... We run all of those aspects that you just mentioned. We, we do our own HR, we do our own IT. You know, the IT has come um, you know, so far in even just a decade. Yeah. Um, we're on a hodgepodge of systems cobbled together um, 10 years ago. Now we're on fully cloud-based um, integrated systems that are also integrating with our client systems directly, which you know was Fantasyland stuff ten years ago. I remember you have to go down to OfficeWorks, buy a CD, yep. install it. Quite often it didn't work on a Mac, which I always had a Mac. Correct. So needed to run a Parallels instance of Windows, yep. and then now you click a button and everything's in the cloud. Yep, you it's can all share there. it with your accountancy practice. It's we have visi- direct visibility of the client's files. There's no transferring files. It's it's, it's great stuff. It gives you a lot more. Uh, insights into a business as well correct, to your clients. Correct. So yeah, look, the main, yeah, the, the, the time at Deloitte, it was all about people. I mean, so many amazing people that I've met through my career um, and, you know, many of them still at Deloitte, um, but also many of them have taken a journey away from Deloitte and become, you know, key uh, personnel in businesses all over um not a lot, not just Victoria, but the world. Yeah. Um, so that those relationships you develop in the early years of your career, um, it, it's just amazing to see 
so many people blossom in their own fields and, and to stay in contact with them and, um, and go on the, the journey with them. And I think, and I think one of the things that is fascinating for me looking at uh, accountancy and law, and I think a lot of people I've spoken to have started in one of those two disciplines, yep. um, but it's the transformation from a very risk-averse practice you know, law and accountancy as much about being smart about business mm. is about ma- managing a client's risk. Yes. And when you run a business, you have to take a number of risks in terms of backing your judgment, how my business is going to grow. Uh, has that been an easy transition for you uh, into a risk taker? It, it hasn't been. Um, look, I, I, I wouldn't say that I've transformed into a massive risk taker we're, we're still inherently about helping clients uh, manage risk and ring fence risk so we it's definitely relevant that I have experienced a lot of the things in my own business that uh, clients are facing so I can talk about it in in the first Stand uh, in their shoes. <laughs> okay. yes correct yeah so that that's definitely helpful and you know, because we see so many businesses, we're so um, close to so many businesses, we see um, things that happen across multiple businesses and we've seen how they've been resolved. So it's often not the first time for us to see an issue within a business and we know which way to guide a client to navigate through whatever the issue might be. So. I mean, our, our main role of accounting and tax, which is you know the bread and butter of what we do, uh, it's still inherently a, a, a risk minimization um, uh, piece. So doing that in my own business, absolutely. Uh, but we, we go for best practice in everything, of course, and we, we try and help our clients um, strive for best practice in their own businesses. And that leads me to the old adage, um you know, the saying is that every successful business needs a good accountant and a good lawyer. Sure. True or false? Absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we, we see a lot of... Um, Why do I need a good accountant? Well, I think if you're talking sort of in startup land, um, you know, a lot of startups are, are, are bootstrapping it from day one. Um, and I think if you don't get the basics right very early on, um, then it can lead to huge issues down the track. Even, I mean, first things first, structuring. Yeah. Uh, if, if you don't get a business structure right on day one, um, you can find out five years later that you've got a massive capital gains tax problem or a, or a liability problem or a risk problem. When you talk about structure, that's structuring the company and also the individual themselves Correct. the way they look at the business yes so from the top down so and it you know it may not be a company it may be a unit trust or um some other structure but and it, and it takes into account um you know the risk of the business how many shareholders there are or unit holders how many how many owners um whether it's a within one family whether there's multiple owners um of course tax minimization is a fairly um important uh, piece we'll we'll come on to that piece, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's essential for protecting liability, yep. um, risk mitigation, and then tax minimisation, tax planning at at the fu- at a future point. Yeah. Um, and those who don't have it can really find themselves shortchanging themselves down the track. Yeah. Look, sa- saving a 
saving a few dollars on uh, getting getting advice up front. Um, I've seen many, many times over costing uh, many, many times more down the track. So it's absolutely worth getting that advice earlier rather than later. And I, and I, and it leads into you know the entrepreneurial journey. A lot of entrepreneurs are good ideas people, not necessarily great at numbers and, and spreadsheets. Sure. Um, you know, when you don't have that skill, are you limiting your potential or how quickly you can grow? I think uh, one of the greatest things uh, a, an entrepreneur can have around them is, a, is somebody who's good at doing the, the housekeeping. So inherently accountants and lawyers tend to be good at doing the housekeeping. So, and with, with the cloud-based um, uh, accounting software available now, um, it's very cheap. You don't have to spend $1,000 up front to get a, a desktop-based program anymore. You can spend a, a, monthly, um, a monthly subscription and have state-of-the-art um, accounting software doing the housekeeping for you. So no excuses. There are no excuses. Yeah. Absolutely no. And so, you know, someone goes to, says to me, you know, um, should, I, should I bother doing that or should I just do it on a spreadsheet? Well, do it on a spreadsheet, but when it comes to tax time, it's just going to cost you more with your accountant because they've got to have a, a, a human transpose all that data into a, an accounting package where the accounting package that you're paying a minimal subscription a month could be doing all that for you. And it all links to your bank accounts and gets data feeds. So, so you're not just talking about, um, you know, having better upside and better protection. You're talking about streamlining the amount of effort that's required to get on top of basic housekeeping yep. and just making it easier. Correct. And look, that that's the, that's the boring housekeeping side of it. The more critical side of it is, you know, a new business will absolutely live and die on its cash flow. So if you don't have real-time data and information, the, the cash can run out very quickly. Um, so having a record of, you know, who, who owes you money and who do you owe money to yep. and where's, where, when's the money coming in and when does the money have to go out, I've just described a cash flow. So um, <laughs> if, if you run is, out of cash, your business ceases. And this is not sexy stuff for a lot of entrepreneurs. It no. doesn't even cross their mind that, you know, um, you've invoiced someone for all the great work. It might be a huge contract, but unless that money's in the bank, you can still go bankrupt. Correct. And, you know, we, we're fully aware that uh, a lot of this stuff is not sexy to, uh, <laughs> to a lot of people. No. So, uh, but fundamental. It's sexy to us. Gee, <laughs> we live and breathe it. But uh, yeah, we we love seeing our clients succeed. Um, when you know when our clients are in distress, it actually causes us distress as well. So we'd rather not see um, see that happening. And it, you know, with again with the uh, real time information that you can glean now from the software available. Um, you really don't want to get to the point where it's all of a sudden a surprise that you've run out of cash or, and you don't need to get to that point. I know from my own experience, when you get caught up in the cut and thrust of the day-to-day -day business, let alone for a new growing, rapidly growing um, business that's just been you know, started and it's all very exciting and it's, it's that you know, just 
reinforces it's just so critical to have something in the background looking after you preferably somebody in the background looking after you so you can go out and and do the exciting stuff and and uh bring the big the big dream to a fruition so i mean you've touched on the mistakes that people are making Mm -hmm. what do you think are the most costly mistakes people make in their financial uh, planning or governance of a business Probably the most costly mistake we often see, as we've touched on, is just not getting that structure right from day one. Um, And then letting the administrative uh, boring stuff get too far behind. Uh, I think there's something like a almost 80-85% correlation between businesses that are not keeping up with their business activity statement lodgements, um, you know, and businesses that fail. Yes. So, and that, that sort of data is provided by the ATO. So, um, if you're falling behind on lodging your business activity statements, you don't know what your position is. Um, you don't know how much money you owe the tax office. Uh, you don't know how much GST you've collected, how much GST you've paid. This is inevitably going to be a cash flow problem. Correct. So, I've, I've um, come across several new clients in the past that have got a big chunk of money in the bank and they think they're flying. Um, Even worse, when you see that sort of client and they've actually spent that money on some new toys or whatever the case may be, then you bring their books up to date and you have to deliver the bad news that you you actually have a liability to the tax office of $150,000 and there's, there's no money in the bank because it's been spent. So... Falling behind on those um, tax lodgements is is an absolute, almost fatal error. So structure can be costly if not done well. Pay attention to that. Yep. Managing your position, you've got all the tools, yep. pay attention to that. And, you know, making sure you've got advice from people who can see the calm when everything's going a little bit crazy yeah um that's also very helpful your uh, your advisors or your accountant um or your lawyer should definitely be the uh the the calming influence when uh when everything's hitting the fan what about scale up then when things are really growing i mean how can insights from your firm and accountants really help pinpoint successful parts of the business and how to how to use that for growth yeah so then when you when you've uh sort of hit that next level of expansion and you're you're thinking about uh ways and means of financing um the growth um and you know there's any number of ways of financing growth we can certainly help people navigate through the maze of options um you know there's a there's uh seeking equity from external stakeholders or shareholders um you know, you need to think about whether you really want to be diluting. Is it the right time to be diluting? Can you get through it without having to give away some of the, the business that you've worked so hard for? Can you seek bank debt? Uh, will the bank even talk to you? Do you have bricks and mortar? Um, debtor, debtor financing. Debt so factoring. Debtor yeah. factoring. Yeah. Um, highly addictive. <laughs> hard to get yourself off. So, yeah, the, the next phase of growth, again... We've seen, we've seen so many go through it before. We've got a lot of uh, war stories that we can, we can fall back on and as experience. Um, so 
generally for any situation we see with it with with our clients it's not our first rodeo so yeah been there done that yep um we know how to help you navigate your way through it from your advice is there anything that listeners can do to get themselves better educated on some of those financial imperatives that should govern their business sure i mean as a i'm probably sounding like a broken record but with the this the software that's available now um there really is no excuse to be uh if you're running your own business you have to be somewhat financially literate um to say oh that's not my strong point or um you know it really doesn't interest me then i'd almost hazard um saying that you probably shouldn't be in business because (laughs) you must take care of this stuff it's it's sort of like brushing your teeth in the morning it's it's just a it's a necessary evil if you're well, in business. Numbers tell the story of the business. Yeah. There's, you know, the first thing someone who's going to buy your business or uh, put equity into your business or a bank who's going to give you debt, the first thing they'll do is look at your profit and loss they statement. They want to see the numbers. And uh, they'll tell the story of the business. You yep. cannot hide from it. And it's so much easier to do these days. Um, so, so do it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Talk to me then about your own business. I mean, you know, 15 years in Deloitte, mm-hmm. you've now got TGS partners up and flying. Uh, how do you keep yourself motivated? Oh, wow. That's, a, that's an interesting one. I think um, just like seeing uh, our team succeed, seeing our clients succeed, uh, you know, that's, to me, that's everything. I And, you know, seeing the business succeed and thrive, um, is what really drives me on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, if, if you certainly can't have a weak constitution when you're in business, there's there's a lot of tough days, there's a lot of tough um, moments, but overall, it's it's so rewarding um, being in business for yourself. Uh, I think I would, you know, I think it's fair to say most people that have been in business would struggle to go back to being an employee. Absolutely. Um, yes. So. Uh, once you've had a taste for the, the cut and thrust of it, um, it is it is enjoyable. Yeah, uh, it's addictive, and yeah, as I said, just seeing seeing our business grow and thrive uh, is what keeps me motivated. And you've got this backdrop of um, you know constant changes with taxation laws, accounting frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we had had a change of government at the last election, there would have been huge amounts of changes. They would have. <laughs> I mean, does that, does that keep you interested in, in the greater accounting uh, macro environment? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I won't, um, I'll, I'll stay apolitical, but uh, <laughs> we, we definitely would have been uh, very, very busy if um, there'd been a change of government, but we're very, very busy without a change of government. So, um, you know, the, the volume of tax legislation that's being produced um, these days is is off the charts. Um, I think there's a uh, there was a very good visual um, that I saw some time ago where the tax legislation, um, in terms of the thickness of the books, was maybe a, you know a couple of books back in 1945. Now, if you stack the tax legislation, it's, up, it's like two meters tall. So, um, yeah, the the amount of legislation that comes out means that you know people in my in this uh, space you know we our tax training is constant and is necessary on an ongoing basis and i think for um 
you know, we talked about the potential for uh, tax planning and uh, the, the terms are tax minimisation, mm. um, which is an entirely smart practice to try and work out legitimate ways to uh, manage your taxation outflows. Mm. Um, if you're not speaking to someone who's versed on these two metres of books, yeah. uh, fair to say you're doing yourself a potential disservice? Very high, very high probability to uh, almost certain probability, uh, particularly if, you, if you're carrying on a business, very little chance that you won't be stumbling over some sort of uh, hidden obstacles. Uh, I mean, you touched on minimisation, as the great Kerry Packer said, uh, any, anyone who pays more than the minimum amount of tax is, is, in, is a mug. So, and I think he said that to a Senate committee. Yeah, well, that was too, yeah, that was in a uh, government um, inquiry, so... Uh, <laughs> by the regulator, by the ATO. Yep, yep. And, and he's right. I mean, you know, um, you can pay more than the minimum tax if you like, and, and you know, the Australian people will thank you. But uh, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is, um, you know, we call that a donation. If you want to make donations, go for it. Um, donations yeah. are tax donations, deductible. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you if you are in business. Um, Tax is a is is just one of the outflows of your business. So absolutely, you, you want to comply with all the relevant tax legislation of the time, but you certainly don't want to be seeing cash flowing out of your business, uh, whether it's for tax or any other expenditure. Bit of a no-brainer. And yes. I suppose the same can be said of tax. If absolutely. there's a structure that enables you to pay less, um, you should probably be looking at it. My word. Especially yeah. if you've got shareholders. Correct. I mean, or, you know, if you're a director of a company, you're, um, you have a fiduciary duty to maximise shareholder returns. So paying, paying too much tax is not maximising shareholder returns. So well, tax is not a dirty word then at all. No, or well, tax minimisation isn't. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, tax, tax is just one part of the puzzle of running a business. So, but it's a very big part of the puzzle. Um, and look, we're more and more seeing the, the ATO and other tax authorities um, doing data matching. Um, they're becoming a lot more sophisticated at getting masses of data on businesses, which is great because I, you know, I, any, any business uh, that is undertaking tax avoidance are uh, absolute to be frowned upon because they're getting an unfair advantage over their competitors. Uh, and they're not, you know, robbing the Australian people. They're not uh, living up to their um, good citizen uh, duties of um, contributing to our great country, schools, hospitals, roads, you name it. So that's what tax is all about. At the end of the day, um, it's to keep keep the country ticking over. So uh, aggressive tax avoidance, um, not interested. And you will ultimately get caught. The systems are so sophisticated now. Correct. Um, oh, look, I would hope anyone undertaking sophisticated, you know, aggressive tax avoidance um, gets picked up for all the, you know, as I said, because they're getting an unfair advantage on their competitors. Yep. They're not living up to their social contract um, for living in this country. Okay, so not sexy, but a huge benefit to business if done well. Yes, absolutely. It should be sexier, I think. I quite we like we it. think it's sexy. Well, you know, when I was working <laughs> when I was working in London myself, doing incredible projects, and some of these projects and these structures seem so convoluted, and you'd sit there and you'd go, 
Why have they done this? And I'd always go to a senior person. The answer would invariably come back tax. Tax, yeah. You know, complex structures to move uh, cash flow obligations, to make the project self-sustaining. Yeah. I mean, these are inherently smart ways to run your business and run certain projects. Yeah, look, I'm a big uh, proponent of the, of the KISS uh, methodology, keep it simple. Uh, so we do see very complex structures sometimes that are almost self-defeating. So absolutely they have their place in, um, in global big corporate land uh, and they may have their place in, in the sort of small to medium enterprise market sometimes. But generally uh, in the space that we operate in, keeping it reasonably simple Straightforward. is the way to go. Done. So let's go back to you now, Darren. Um, secrets of your success. I mean, started off ambling, now running at pace with your own business. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had a few challenges along the way. You said that yourself, why didn't you fail? What's kept you pushing forward through all of this? Wow, uh, another another challenging question. I, I think a big part of it for me is, is people. Um, I'm inherently a, a people person um, and that that is probably reinforced by the uh, fact that I was given the people partner role at Deloitte. So I very much enjoy, as I've touched on, seeing other people succeed and being a part of helping other people succeed. So, uh, you know, being being the, uh, the ear for up to, for 200 people at uh, Deloitte Private back in the day, very much um, dropped me in the deep end of, of uh, the learning curve on, um, you know, showing empathy, but also um, being tough when you needed to. Uh, I mean, running, running a business is all about people, uh, yeah. whatever the business is, uh, unless you're, I don't know, buried in a dark room somewhere um, coding, but even then, you eventually you're gonna to have to deal with people. You have to deal with bankers. You're gonna to have to deal with potential well, your code, staff. Code ends up in a part of a system that someone gives you feedback and says, "Correct, we wanted to do this." Correct. So um, the numbers are, you know, that that's uh, the headline of what what game I'm in. But it's really all about people, and the clients are really what um, I'm in this caper for. Um, and you know, uh, there's a reason I'm in the the middle market family business space. It's because the people behind the businesses that we work with, are, you know, they're real, it's their business, they're passionate, um, they live and breathe it, um, as opposed to big corporate land where you're dealing with a lot of sort of um, people that are employees and possibly not quite as passionate as the, yeah, yeah. the owners yeah. of a business. It's a bit so more clinical. It is a bit more clinical. Yeah. So I've really found my my sweet spot with the with the owners and the families. Um, that's what that's what gets me out of bed. And what about then um, at another level? So, someone who mentors you, you're mentoring all of these clients and helping them with business decisions. Sure. Have you had someone helping you and uh, someone you look up to that you seek advice from? As oh, well? absolutely. Uh, so there's there's a few senior um, partners at Deloitte that. You know, I'm still in touch with, and that have definitely provided great mentorship over 25 years, and and continue to do so. Uh, the the irony is that 
I believe I get um, almost as much from some of my clients as, as I provide. So I'm providing them guidance on their business in terms of accounting, tax, strategy, um, systems, and they're providing me mentorship um, on, a, on a business and life basis. So um, that's a really great dynamic to have with, uh, with some of our clients. You know, I think uh, one of the other things that uh, I see you give to clients, you also give to uh, charitable causes. You've got uh, Igniting Change and the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre I know you've been involved with as well. Um, what drives you to want to give back? It can't just be tax deductions. No, well, there, there is, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a, a tax-related thing. It's, um, I mean, that's time. So I believe that, you know, anyone born in Australia has already won the lottery really on a global scale. Uh, I've been very fortunate um, to end up where I am. I know there's been a lot of hard work and, and so forth, but there's also been a lot of good fortune. So I think uh, being involved with Igniting Change, for example, it's giving back um, and it keeps it keeps me grounded to some degree. Um, you know, seeing that, you know, we I, I move in a fairly interesting circle where I'm dealing with people that um, uh, are probably at the higher end of the wealth spectrum in Australia. Um, so, you know, seeing that that not everyone is as fortunate as that, um, if I can do something to help um, relieve some of that uh, distress in some way, even even if it's not being at the coalface, but just helping keep an organisation financially healthy and um, guiding very, its strategy. Very grounding experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, it's, uh, that, I've been involved with Igniting Change now for 15 years um, and, you know, I, I can't see uh, my life being um, complete without that being part of my life. So, um, yeah, it's really good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, I think it's been common amongst everyone I've interviewed that part of their time is giving back. Yeah. Um, it can't all be take. No. At some point, you'll get hit by the karma bus mm -hmm. and it just doesn't feel good. No. From the, from the uh, serious and profound to the more absurd and comical, sure. the quick fire round. <laughs> what? Uh -oh. Who is your favourite comedian? Uh, that would be Jimmy Carr. Tennis player? Oh, Barty. Favourite band? Favourite band. Oof. I, I could end up being ridiculed around the globe, but um, Backstreet Boys? No, they're, they're very serious. No, no, uh, Fondest childhood memory? Wow. Oh, look, I would say not a specific one, but the three years in Papua New Guinea was just amazing amazing uh, the the life experience of you know being able to go and see remote tribes in the highlands and um you know going to school with with 60 different nationalities at port moresby high uh was just extraordinary i mean it shaped me for the rest of my life yeah, yeah. i can imagine that's amazing uh most memorable smell Whew. most memorable smell Oh, look, probably one that sticks to mind is I um, actually flew to New York three days after 9-11. Oh, wow. And just the, the smell, because it was still burning. 
Sorry, the yeah, just the the ash. That there was just ash everywhere, and um, yeah, the the smell. I'll never forget the smell. Mm. Yeah. Um, what? Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? I would love to have lunch with you, Tony Simmons. <laughs> but uh, uh, dead or alive, um, you know, someone like um, Jesus or Muhammad or. Or Buddha, maybe or all three of them. All of them in once. one room. You've seen incredible changes in the accounting industry uh, over time with technology and software. Sure. What areas of emerging tech are you interested in? Artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, Isn't that going to do you out of a job? Correct. Uh, I've I've been told from literally graduating from university 25 years ago, that accountants will be out of the job. So I'm really looking forward to that coming true. Um, and I'll, I'll head off into the sunset of retirement. So what's next for you? How do you keep your entrepreneurial spirit alive? Well, uh, the, the changing uh, landscape of um, accounting, tax and wealth management. Um, I mean, that's, that's an area of our business that's growing through the, the wealth span um, business uh, rapidly. Um, I think our clients are more and more looking for guidance um, across the whole range of their accounting tax and building wealth and protecting wealth um, in one spot rather than having a financial planner down the road. Um, and we all know what's happened in well, the financial just, planning just makes space. So much sense when you're trying to achieve these outcomes. Yes. All of that information's under one roof. Correct, and that you know the left hand can talk to the right yeah. hand very yeah. quickly. Um, well, look, some incredible insights for people. I'm sure it will have opened a lot of people's eyes to yep. uh, what is sometimes unfairly branded a bit of the unsexy side of business. Yeah. It's not get it right and you know a lot of wins. Yeah. Darren Heverin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tony. And, uh, thanks for being on Discipline. Hopefully uh, all the listeners will no longer see their accountants as boring and <laughs> unsexy. They won't. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, thanks Tony. Darren.